Sunny 16 presents. Welcome, everyone, to episode eight of I Dream of Cameras, the podcast about cameras and camera collecting, brought to you by the gang at Sunny 16. My name is Jeff Greenstein. And I'm Gabe Sachs. Welcome to the show. Thank you for rejoining us. I continue to be moved by the outpouring in the film community, the the emotion. How do you feel about it, Gabe? I love it. People are still so generous. You'd think they'd dip a little. You'd think it would be a time, well, you know, it's fine. Those guys are okay. But they've been even more supportive as we go on. So I love it. Yes. So thank you to everybody who has commented on the show, who sent us lovely Instagram messages. And we actually want to make that process easier. So I'm going to just put this right up front. We now have our own email address. Ba-da. What do you think it is? What is it, Gabe? Hmm. I believe it's idreamofcameras at gmail.com. That's correct. So you can obviously reach us through the I Dream of Cameras Instagram, but if you want to compose something that is more like an email, if you want to share your own photography with us in an email or your latest camera acquisition, idreamofcameras at gmail.com is an easy way to do that. Fantastic. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. I cannot believe these addresses are available. I know. We now own the world. We're astride <laughs> the planet yes, with we do. I Dream of Cameras. Yes. yes. So I want to start because we've had an eventful week. Gabe, can you talk a little bit about what you've been up to the last week? So this week, uh, in regards to um, camera purchasing and lens purchasing and things like that, I went down the rabbit hole of Russian cameras and Russian lenses, which I didn't what know What inspired about. that, by the way? You know, I think the conversation on Sunny 16 with Vlad, and I think that it was... I just was fascinated with it because I just didn't know enough about it. And so I started going through photographers and people I knew who shot with Russian cameras and on and on. And then somehow I narrowed it down to this Volna 3 lens, which I know is a crazy sounding name, but it just, the bokeh on it was amazing uh, from this these cameras and these people who shot with them. I thought, this is perfect. So I look and look and look all over eBay. I find one fantastic. It says it has a Pentacon 6 mount. I have a Pentacon 6 camera, so this is yeah. a perfect marriage. And I order it. It was totally reasonable. It gets to me. I'm so excited. I get it. I go to put it on my camera, and it doesn't fit. And I go, it's a Pentacon 6. It's a Pentacon mount. And no, it does not fit. I need the Kiev 60 or 88 to work that lens and it's so confusing why it's not and what it is it's one of those things you ever have a lens where you put it on a camera and it almost fits oh you, yes you swear if oh, you yes. force it it'll fix but it's actually a threading if you took the threading off it would fit oh man so that's going to sit on my shelf until i can get uh, more information i have been advised that i might actually have to get uh kiev 88 unfortunately this is where i was going <laughs> that you might have to buy a camera to go with the lens you just got right that yeah. was that was weird. So the other thing was the, um, you know, I kept hearing you talk about the Olympus OM-1 and Olympus and those lenses and on and on that I broke down and I bought an OM-1 that should be here any day now. That is exciting. I'm kind of thrilled. Never shot I'm with one. I'm kind of thrilled. Never shot with one. I've never it's picked gonna, oh. one up. I've never shot with them. I do have one lens. I have that 50 1.8. Great. And that's all I have. You're going to love it. 
And it wasn't expensive, is my guess. No. Not an expensive acquisition. It was a great deal. KEH. That is great. Yeah, they always have a few. Though, you know, they had that OM3TI. Remember I told you about that? Yeah. Gone. Oh, boy. The OM3TI, which is probably the rarest of the initial OM line, right. was titanium-bodied. I don't even know that much about it other than it sort of occupies the space in the OM line that the Nikon FM3A occupies in right. the Nikon line in that it is sort of the terminus of the de- evolution of the camera, and it's the one everybody wants. And I saw one in KH. It was a lot of money, but I, it was much less money than what they were going for on eBay, and I tagged it on my wish list and I went back to look after you bought your OM1 and it was gone. Oh boy. And I also looked for the M1, the one the fancy one oh, that you yeah. have and it was also from Japan and I was like wondering hmm do I get that one or wait for so I'm going to wait for the OM1 and then get yes, excited about the it. special one. Yeah. OM1s are so damn good and as you said not not a terrifically expensive way to get into a system. Right. That'll be fun. Our designer, Keith Greenstein, I gifted him an OM-1, and he was out shooting with it this weekend. It made me very happy. That's so great. Yeah, he said he had not shot with a 35-millimeter SLR in about 30 years, and he was really, really excited to do it. So It's so crazy, because and then Fred Corey has the Roloflex that I gave him, and he shot it for the first time this week. He was in Arizona. He loves it. He just loves looking through it. He hasn't, he's trying to get through to 12, like he's on frame 11. And just to get him to 12 is sort of a big event because we really want him to finish one roll. So I think he's almost done with it. And it'll be very exciting to see what he got. By the way, you just used one of those English phrases that sounds like Yiddish. Oh, which one? Big event. Oi. (laughs) There's spatula. Big event. Yeah, there's oh, a lot. Oh, uh, uh, far be it from me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? Oh, boy. Far be I'm it from you. me. All right. That was a comedy writer's sidebar. <laughs> I had a very exciting week. I mentioned in our last episode that I was circling the Roloflex SL350 right. to catch you guys up. I had an SL35. I got rid of it, even though it's a very beautiful camera, not fantastically usable camera. I just wasn't shooting with it all that much. And talking about it made me nostalgic for it. I had this pang. like, <laughs> But I never go back. I don't go back and rebuy cameras that I've offloaded. I don't wow. do that. But I had always kind of had a little Jones for this SL350, which is the improved, upgraded, and rarer version of the SL35. So of course, it was a natural evolution. And as I mentioned on the last podcast, they're only available in Europe. Only 7,900 were made. I found one in Italy. I communicated with the seller, a la Gabe Sachs. I bought it. And I it said that it wasn't going to arrive till like early April. Right. It arrived Today. Today. That's unbelievable. It is so, and look, I mean, that is really quite beautiful. Isn't it lovely I love it. looking? I love it. It's lovely, right? I know I'm anti-case, but this camera also came with the loveliest leather case I've ever seen. It's so beautiful, like really high-grade leather, and it's got a planar lens, which is nice. It has one little flaw, which I'm not even going to talk about. Okay. Should I talk about it? Yes, of course you should talk about it. Okay. You're going to make fun of me. No, I won't. That's fine. 
I promise okay. I won't. So the camera in photographs looked absolutely immaculate, and it pretty much is. And it wasn't until I started shooting with it that I noticed the tiniest, tiniest little flaw. You're not even going to be able to see this. The inside of the advance lever, the plastic is a little cracked. Okay, that's that? got to stop. That's got to stop. Now, Do you see what I'm talking about? I like a camera. If that thing was banged up to all heck, I, yeah, I, I would know, still I love it. You're worrying about no one in the world is going to... I want you to go to a camera show I know, and see who notices I know. it. Yeah, It's not even visible. I mean, that's the thing. It wasn't visible in photograph because it's not visible. Right. And I would not have noticed it had my thumb not briefly brushed across the part that is cracked. And it doesn't affect use at all, except you know me. So you know I, what I've been doing. In your head. In your head. You're going to be like, oh, no, I got the... The freaky I, advance lever. <laughs> I started looking on eBay to see. Oh, no. It's such a, you know, and I did this with my Leica CL, by the way. I dropped my Leica CL once, and it broke the plastic off the advance lever. And it bothered me. I glued it back on, but it bothered me. Right. I found an advance lever on eBay, and I replaced it myself. And well now done. Kind of good, right? Not yeah. not expensive, by the way. The advance was like 15 bucks. Wow. I did it myself. I feel incredibly self-actualized, and my compulsive nature is satisfied now. I love so, it. So this gives me, like, I have a lot of joy. I've been out shooting with this thing. It's really fun. There's very, very little information on the internet about this camera because I guess they're so rare, and it didn't really penetrate the American market at all. Um, nor the English market for that matter. So most of the stuff you see written about it is written in German, but I love it and I'm really <laughs> glad I did it. So that was thing one. And then thing two, very briefly, I was on a road trip. Um, my Where'd girlfriend you go? And I, Where'd you go? Yeah, my girlfriend and I went to Phoenix to see my kid. We went via Joshua Tree. We shot our music video for our hit rock band, beautiful music. Obviously. And uh, so that was really fun. There were lots of opportunities to shoot and I brought along two cameras. I brought the Wide Lux, loaded with HP5 from my sexy bulk loader. Love it. And I brought the Journeyman Olympus XA4 macro that I take everywhere. Gabe, I shot with nothing but the Wide Lux. And so exciting. Something is happening with this camera and me right now. It's what we've talked about on this podcast when a new tool like unlocks you somehow and you start to see the world a little differently and it's manifest in the photographs you take. The first couple of rolls out of this thing, I came back right. with three rolls, which, by the way, I scanned in no time with my brand new camera dactyl mongoose, which I'm going right. to talk about in a little bit. But when these things went up on my monitor, I was like, I'm so excited. Like It's like seeing the work of another photographer who I like, except that photographer is me. There you go. How good is that? That's it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. It's the best. And I'm still figuring out how it works. Have you done, you have one. Have you done a lot of photography with this I've machine? shot a lot of stuff with it, but n but you have been shooting so much, it's making me want to go shoot with it more and more and more. I love doing sort of huge environmental portraits with it. Yeah. And I, I've yeah. been shooting a lot of stuff like that, but I think that I will do more of that in the city. Like I'd love to do that downtown and Hollywood yeah. Boulevard and it's beautiful. I'm starting to get a feel for how to compose in this 126 degree frame and that's really exciting and if you've never used a wide lux check jeff bridge's book pictures volume two out of your local public library 
to get a sense of how this looks. It's very distinctive, and he's been shooting with the Wide Lux for something like 30 years. And he's just a master of he's understanding yeah. Yeah, where to dispose his subjects in the frame for maximum impact and aesthetic pleasure. It's just, And I'm just now starting to tune into that in a way that I find really exciting. So, so good. just the best. So that was very thrilling. So yeah. that was our little recap. Yeah, really fun. This episode actually has a theme because all our episodes have a theme. <laughs> This episode, the theme is trust the process. We're going to talk a little bit about processing because an essential part of the photographer's toolkit is the lab, whether it is a lab in your home or a lab that you use. I want to throw it to Gabe because you do a lot more work with labs than I do. So can you talk a little bit about judging a lab, lab anxiety, how you make those selections? Well, first of all, we've all had that feeling. You send your film in and you have no control. You know, it's like when we send a script into the network. A little. Yep. We have no control. (laughs) We have no control. Uh, We're hoping they develop it the right way. Very good. Well done. That's how we're hoping the lab works. But it's always a thing that you turn in your film, even when I was little. You'd go to One Hour Photo or whatever, and you were very insecure of how this was going to come out. And I think now I still have that worry about losing film. And so I like to know a lab really well now. So that's something, the more I've shot myself, I've wanted to go and meet the people at the lab if that's possible. Oh, and okay. and I love to sort of see their process and how they think about their business and it's not run like a factory. I like to, you know, I like to be a little smaller. And so one place that I got to know was the dark room, which is in San Clemente. And very close to us. Very close. I mean, like a day's mail from us, which is yeah, good. Yes. Sometimes it's a day's mail from us. Yeah. At that film Padea that we went to, I was able to get a tour of the dark room. And it was great. I was able to ask all the questions I wanted to ask. I saw it was an operation, smaller operation. And I saw a lot of stuff was done by hand. And I loved it. I love that part of it. And and they sort of show, you know, there's there's people that do send in film with absolutely no information, no right. name, no address, no. I mean, they have a very simple mailer uh, you can get. And of course, me being so over paranoid, I went on and got some labels printed, which I put on every single roll of film. Wow. And it has my name and my phone number, my email and my Instagram. And I this, put you put physically on the I cassette, physically the put on cassette. every single cassette. That's really because smart. I really am nervous about film being lost. So the dark room's great. They have these great mailers. Uh, you do everything online. I think they're extremely reasonable. Send it down to them. But here's the other thing. Sometimes the mail here, and we're only about an hour and a half, I'd say drive from them yeah. or hour and forty five right. minutes. Sometimes it takes too long, and that makes me a little crazy. So what I will do once a week before the pandemic, <gasps> I would do the drive. I would drive down there, and it's such a weird feeling because you're you, they don't know you've driven an hour and 45 minutes, so you expect to go to the door, and they go, Gabe, how are you? Oh, my God, it's so, it's so good to see. Have a seat. Have a coffee. Let's talk about – I don't drink coffee, but if you did, drink yeah. coffee. And uh, let's tell you about how the lab's been today. No, you literally get to the door, you open it up, and you literally hand someone your envelope, and you're out of there in 19 seconds. 
So I will, it's just so funny. And, and you're sort of like going, uh, are you sure you have everything? Is there anything else I need to do? And, and I go, nope, we're all good. And then you leave and then that's it. Then I you know, roam around St. Clemente and then dr- make the drive home. But I sort of enjoy knowing that it got there. So I do not have, so once a week, I will, um, you know, before the pandemic, once a week, I would come down and, and drop my five or eight rolls or 20 rolls of film with them. And I've been really, really happy. I have not had a problem with them at all. So that's been great. I have some questions. Black and white or color or everything. everything. Expired everything. 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 Have you ever had the experience of a role getting lost? And that is why you have this anxiety. Of course not. No. <laughs> Did you listen to the episode six where I had my cameras in the car for a war correspondent uh, job that I'm looking for in Pacific Palisades? Okay. Okay. So this is an irrational anxiety about the film getting lost. Do you know that I've never thought of this and now you have implanted the worm in my brain and I'm going to think about it all No, that's part of it. And I think that I, I, I just know that when it's in their hands, that it's not my fault if something goes wrong. And I think I, I feel much better about that. Yeah. But yes, they've been great. They're great. And I'd send a lot of stuff to them too. And I think developing a relationship with a lab is great. I went on that tour. I didn't I didn't stay for the whole paideia, but on the previous FPP walking workshop, which was in San Clemente, I met the gang down there and it felt really good to like walk around and see the machinery and meet the people who were handling your stuff. And then yep. when, you know, when the name Kevin is written on your envelope, you're like, oh, I met Kevin. It's kind of right. Like, but I love the idea that you thought you were going to get the Sinatra in Vegas kind of reception I, I, when you walk because in. Because I've driven down. I've driven the one hour and 45 minute drive. But look, I've really, I've been, I've been happy with the dark room. It's been great. And I feel like there's something about having a reasonable cost for, you know, developing and scanning that I think is really important. It's also really important if you're just getting into photography because it's expensive. And so if you can get an expired roll of film cheap and you have a cheap camera and on and on and you really want those pictures to come out, I think to spend $12 on a roll for scanning and, you know, development is a great Yeah, no question. Now, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned in a previous episode that a lot of the film I shot was Ilford XP2 Super. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I would rarely, until very recently, when I started doing my own processing, which we'll talk about in a minute, when I shot black and white, I would shoot XP2 so I could take it to my local one-hour lab. See, I wasn't even willing to wait as long as you're waiting wow. to mail things and get the mail back. So I would look for good labs in my neighborhood. And there were still quite a few when I started doing this 20 years ago. Right. Did you ever find a one-hour lab in your neighborhood or did was that did you not have enough faith? No, in I think years and years ago, you know, I went to you know, when we did Freaks and Geeks because we were over at Raleigh Studios, I think I used A&I you know, oh, okay. and I yeah. think I use some labs. Uh, but again, are, you're talking about like nicer. Yeah, yeah. There labs. were there are some I haven't used, haven't used a one hour in many many years. See, the other thing that was good about like Rocket and a couple of these other places is I could jolly them into doing half frame for me at no additional cost. Oh, that's great. Whereas a lot of labs like what you're talking about, A and I or the dark room, if you want to do half frame or panoramic or something, there's going to be a, a price hit for that. So sometimes your local lab, if you really get to know them, you know, and you bring them a plate of cookies, they might do your half frame stuff. Yeah, and there are charge. professional labs that are super, 
super expensive. I'm yes. not saying they don't do an amazing job, and they do, but it is really sometimes prohibitive to go and get your stuff done there because yeah. it's really, yeah. really expensive. So, you know, you have to sort of really find out how much all the stuff is and then make your judgment, like send them maybe one roll and see if yeah. it's worth it. See, I usually reserve those kind of labs, like those high-end, really precision labs for printing a negative that I'm already confident about. Right. You know, like I'm going to blow this up because I'm going to have, I'm going to print it. I'm going to have a silver brace print made and I'm going to give it as a gift or I'm going to hang it on my wall. And that's when I use that. And it's, you know, it's not an outstanding amount of money. It's like 40 to $60 or something right. like that for a really meticulous print. But obviously you're not going to do that for just some 36 exposure roll. Right. You know, um, so I tend to do that. And I've done that a handful of times, like eight or nine times. And again, there's a couple of labs like Richard Photo Lab in Hollywood I've used. They're I actually don't think they're based in Hollywood. I think they're in like Santa Clarita now or something. But I work with them and they're really, really good. So like it's, it is really something, and I think you've done this as well, to work with a master printmaker. Yeah. Where you like... You know, you have like a test print. You talk about dodging and burning and certain highlights you want and pick out a paper and things like that. It's really exciting when you have, like I said, a negative that you feel really good about and an image that you're excited about printing. I think what I did with all my uh, Freaks and Geeks negatives is I brought them to the Icon. What's that? And that the Icon is a very high-end, amazing lab in Hollywood. And they're expensive, but they are pretty meticulous about their work. And I brought all the Freaks and Geeks negatives in to be scanned. And, wow. and they did a great job. So I was really, really happy with that. But, you know, it's not an everyday lab. It's a pro lab. Yeah. Um, some people use it every day, but uh, I know that that's, that's a lab that, you know, all kinds of pros use. And those are like drum scans, I would guess, like really high quality drum scans that you pay for because these are one of a kind images and right. so forth. Yeah, that makes sense. What about, now we're, let's talk about doing it at home for a second. Yes. Do you have a home processing setup right I, now? I do have a home processing setup that I'm very excited about and I've been motivated because you started doing it. I, I'd say last year I went on to Facebook Marketplace and I was looking for an enlarger. Mm. And I wanted an enlarger. And I found one that was reasonable. And I wrote to him. And he was in San Diego. And I said, I'm coming down. Like, it was it was, it was, was great. I was very, very excited to get this Bessler 23. See, I think. And, and so yeah. drove down there. And he opened up. He had an entire darkroom was his guest house. And oh, he, is this the guy who gave you all the expired film too? Yeah. So I opened Amazing. up the door and he said, you can have everything in this room. That's fantastic. That could fit so in my just, car. <laughs> yeah. So that's like a turnkey darkroom setup where you have everything. Tur I have everything. Pass. So I have not done anything with that enlarger, but I do okay. have a small bathroom off my home office and I have set up film processing in there with all the other stuff that he... Uh, that was there in that dark room and it's been great like i love it. it plus stuff i've had for years but yeah it's been great so you've done some of your own processing and then scanning which we'll talk about in a second yes i i i'm not the expert on scanning but yes i have done scanning by watching a lot of youtube and and yeah uh, yeah i have the very honeywell nikor stainless steel 
developing tank that I had when I was 13. Wait, I still have it. Wait, the stainless tank? You use the stainless yeah. tank? Oh, I do. I'm badass. No, I use the stainless. That's ridiculous. Well, I got to be honest. When I was learning, and again, I'm like eight, nine, ten years old when I was learning to process, I used, I don't know how to describe it. People who did did home processing in the 1970s and 80s, Kodak made this particular film tank, and it wasn't plastic reels, and it wasn't stainless steel reels. It was long strips of plastic that had wavy edges like lasagna. Right, right. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, but I, I, yeah. So you would, it wasn't a reel. You would put the end of the film into the lasagna and you would wind it up and drop it in the tank. So that was the original stuff I did, but that was for babies. Right. And I was told that the real man used the Honeywell Nikkor stainless steel tank. So I bought one and I still have it. Right. But it sat on the shelf with my old Gray Lab timer forever because I didn't have a dark room. And at the time, for some reason, I didn't make the connection to like, I'll buy a changing bag. It just seemed like, what do I need this aggravation right. for? What changed everything for me was the lab box, which I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about the lab box. A lot of people have talked about it, but it basically is a daylight developing tank. It is a device where you put the film cassette in, you feed it onto a little clamp, and then you spin close it and spool it onto the reel in daylight. And then the, the device becomes the tank. So you pour chemicals in, pour chemicals oh out. My gosh. So it's incredibly so cool. convenient. Yeah, the design is very clever and it started via Kickstarter a few years ago. And so I backed this thing and it was transformative. Oh, wow. The other thing that was transformative for me, because I'm lazy, was FPP's monobath. Oh, interesting. Because I didn't really want to get into a developer, a stop bath, and a fixer, because that's a lot of chemicals to have sitting around. And again, I just didn't want to have a lot of bottles. Everything lives in one drawer in my kitchen. I have a stainless steel sink in my kitchen. And so everything lives in a drawer. And all I need is the mono bath and then like an archival wash, also from FPP. And that's what I got. And for a while, FPP wasn't doing it anymore. So I got Cinestil's DF96 mono bath, which is based on D96. Right. And it is... So quick, like you are in and out from the time that you put the film on the reel to the time that you're hanging it to dry is 12 minutes. You're kidding. You're 12 kidding. minutes. Processing time is like three and a half minutes. It's crazy. And temperature control is easy because anywhere between 75 and 80, you're in the ballpark. So you just run some hot water in the sink, drop your you know beaker yep. into the water. When it hits 75... Pour it in, start processing, hang dry, and then an hour later you're scanning. That's great. So I like I'm so into instant gratification, and it's so good because it's I've re-fallen in love with genuine black and white film. Right. But it also, and this circles back to what our podcast is all about. If you are buying gear, you want to know as soon as possible what kind of images you're gonna get out of that camera. Is there a draggy shutter? You know, is there, is the focus off? Light leaks, another perfect example. You want to know if your gear works and having a functional home processing setup is essential. Like you don't want to send that film off, pay money and wait a week to know if your camera works, especially if it's something you bought on eBay and the clock is ticking. And it doesn't take a lot of money. It really doesn't. If you have one of those tanks, which you can get used and, you know, a small batch of chemicals, 
it's easy to do. It really is easy to do, and you can find out quickly if your camera works, which is really valuable. Yeah, and and look, the lab box is not cheap. Yeah, lab box is hundred, hundred and fifty. I don't know what they're going for now. The prices come down a bit, but you're right that uh, the stainless steel tank or all right, let's reels, let's, let's talk about this. So, so you said that you know when you're a baby, you have the. Uh, the uh, the wavy the thing. Okay. So yeah, yeah. when you're a toddler, I've learned you have the plastic reels, which I love. So I'm in the toddler stage, and here's what I love about those those plastic reels is that in the dark, when I close my eyes, even though I'm in the changing bag and things are dark, I close my eyes. Not sure why, but I will close my eyes and I will have that beautiful plastic reel with the thick sort of plastic guide lip that I could put the film in and have no issue and then crank it around and I put my pinky there so I know that the the film is going through the reel. I couldn't be happier. That stainless stuff, I have a number of those stainless reels because they came with sort of the darkroom and terrifies me. I just think that's one of those things I'm just going to mess up. Those plastic reels you have, which are kind of where you where you kind of shuffle them. Oh back yeah! And forth, oh yeah! Brilliant! That didn't exist. That did not exist when I was a kid. Ah. it was either lasagna or stainless steel. There was no yeah. middle step. And honestly, if I were getting into developing today, I would probably opt for the plastic reels because they're so damn easy. And Love there's it. and they're foolproof. Like once you thread it in right, you go shuffle, 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 and it sucks the film onto the reel in the proper way. The but I learned how to do stainless steel. So on the rare occasion, like I had a, I was taking pictures at my friend's daughter's wedding with my brand new Rolly 35 SE. And at the end of the roll, the film broke away from the cassette. So what am I going to do? You can't use right. a lab box under those circumstances because it's not in a canister. Right. So I broke out my changing bag, and so I'm going to have to process it in a conventional tank. And I was very glad that I had the muscle memory of how to thread the film onto the stainless steel reel so I was able to process that roll because I don't have the plastic gear that you right. have. But there's not it's i'm completely against snobbery so like just because i say that grown-ups use stainless steel that's only true from when (laughs) i was a kid there is nothing wrong with your plastic reel it's great i'm very happy easier and also it's got ball bearings it does oh it does have ball it's so fun anyway yeah besides that then you talk about okay how do i do this so you know the massive development chart that is online, which you can see, you know, your film and how long it's going to take and what your chemicals are. And it gives you all these things. They've also, it's an app. So now on yes. your phone, you could just literally go it, you punch in your film and your speed and your size and all that stuff. And you press start and there the timer starts. So it's like five minutes or whatever the time is. And you pour your chemicals in and then it gives you an alarm and then you do pour it out and didn't do the, you know, stop bath and the fixer. And it gives you a wash time and it's fantastic. It's such a great guide. And I wish, you know, we didn't have iPhones then, but it'd be so great to have it back then. But yes, I think it's so helpful. And, and you just, I find you just have to do it. I think it's the, it's the working yourself up to actually do it yourself. And um, once you actually go through with it, you're so much more comfortable because if you go down that rabbit hole online of how you should be inverting the tank, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is why I'm saying for novices, I would try a monobath. Like yep. just, it's so damn easy because there's only three steps. 
There's an initial rinse just to wet your film, which I don't even think counts. Right. There's the mono bath, which I said, three and a half minutes. And then there's a you can use an archival wash if you want, or you can just rinse and go. So it's so simple. You don't even have to worry about like how long was my fixer in? Right. Did I over did, did I use the right stop bath? I don't even I mean, again, I've been processing film with a big break in the middle since I was a kid, but yep. I still use the monobath because it is just so streamlined and so easy. So if That's you're getting cool. started- I have to try that. Yeah, but buy the used crap on eBay because you yep. know a, a good tank will last forever. The stainless steel ones are indestructible. So if you're willing right. to learn, the stainless steel ones will never fail. Changing bag, super cheap, got mine on Amazon, and you're in business. Yep. And I think it's just a good thing to try. Like we talked about in a previous episode, I have the gear, but I also have the fear. This is right. one of those situations where I sat around with the gear and the fear for a really long time. And I realized it ain't no thing. It's so yep. easy. Similarly, you ever done color processing? Absolutely not. You know why? Because, <laughs> because you've it's been terrifying. brainwashed. You've been brainwashed <laughs> by the color Nazis into believing that it's somehow infinitely more difficult. Yeah, that's exactly why. I do yeah. black and white because it's easy. I remember when I was a kid doing black and white processing and I would read about Cibachrome and Jobo yeah. tanks and, oh, yeah. uh, and Blix. What the hell is a Blix? And I would get overwhelmed and scared. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'll never be able to do that because this is those esoteric things with dyes and it's all exotic and strange. Right. I just decided, this wasn't even that long ago. It was about six months ago. I was like, you know what? Cinestill makes a C41 kit. It's cheap. It's about, I think, like $29. I'm just going to give it a try. Now that I feel like I'm enjoying black and white developing, mm -hmm. how bad can it be? So I shot off a roll of my favorite color stock which is fuji superior 400 and i tried it now the thing about color is the only thing is you need to worry a little bit more about precision on temperature that's okay. it and by the way only for the developer only for the developer the blix there's like a 30 degree range that just, that's okay wow all right so you need to nail 102 degrees with your developer once you do that it is just as many steps. It's the same way you do develop, stop, fix. You just do develop, blix, stabilizer. It's just three different baths. And if you nail the temperature, it's amazing. And I got to say, people talk about what it's like when you unfurl a roll of slide film that you've developed. Right. And it looks so beautiful. I have not had that experience because I've never tried E6 or ECN2. I never tried slide processes. Right. I just don't shoot slide film. But when you pull a color strip a film off I of can't imagine reel. it. I'm dead serious. I can't imagine. I'd love I know, to figure that out. It's unimaginable. And then when you put it into your scanner, I'll never forget this. The role that I shot, my girlfriend and I went to the Huntington, uh, the museum and gardens and so forth. I took a bunch of pictures uh, just figuring, oh, this will be a good test for color film. Right. The first frame that I scanned, I was like, I heard angelic choirs sing. Because <laughs> like, are you telling me I can actually develop my own color? Now, Scanning, color balance, it's trickier. It is trickier. Of course it is. But the developing part is cake. It's so easy. And I just Gotta would urge it. you, if you've been balking at it, the Cinestel C41, I mean, there's there's a Unicolor C41. They're all basically kind of the same three-bath situation. Right. And it's super fun. I even processed some Lomachrome Purple 
just to like wow. try it, you know, because it's all C41. So don't be scared of color processing. I'll try it. Let's talk about scanning a little bit because I would say oh boy. there's a lot of challenges baked into scanning. How I long have you been scanning your own film? Probably the last six months, really. Oh. It's been, it's been a really new thing. And I, you know, I've had scanners and I've had scanners where, you know, you clip the film in and you put the thing on top, again, the thingy, and yes. you put that on top and you put that in the scanner and they just never came out right. So I decided to sort of go on YouTube and watch a million things about doing scanning through your digital camera and I found my old Durst F30 enlarger. Same one I had. And uh, unscrewed the top of it and put something on it. And it's been the greatest thing ever. And so, but it's still one of those things where it's put the negatives, line them up, and my back's about to break because I'm doing one at a time and refocusing and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So you, you never did the flatbed scanning thing. Your Not scanning really. has all been with a digital camera. Well, no, I did. I have the Epson. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, okay. Next, next to me, but it doesn't. It's it's not as uh, accurate. I have been on the odyssey of scanning. Wow. Because when I got back into photography, whatever it was, 20 years ago, I bought a dedicated film scanner, a Nikon. Oh Cool Scan Three, I think is what that's it what was. everyone dreamed of getting that one. I know it's in storage somewhere. I gotta get, but you know it's <laughs> it's getting scuzzy hardware to hook up to your contemporary MacBook not easy. But anyway, it's had a little motor that sucked the film in, or had a different module for thirty five millimeter slides. I even had the module for APS film, oh my where goodness. it would pull the film out and it would scan. It would go, it would go zh, 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 and scan, and then zh, 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 <laughs> and it was incredibly arduous and incredibly slow. Right. And you couldn't scan a whole roll at a time. You could scan six frames at a time, and then it would spit it out, and you'd put in the next six frames. At the time, it seemed like a miracle to me. Right. You know, and it had uh, digital ice, so it would oh, correct I remember that. Yep. dust and scratches. That was amazing. Then I graduated to an Epson flatbed, and I don't have the V-something that everybody loves. I have a 4870, which is pretty old. But... That seemed like an upgrade to me because then you would put the film in this carrier and you could put an entire roll on the flatbed and then just, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, well, I, yeah. I don't have that. And then, yeah. and then you could go for, get coffee or go out to dinner because it was going to take like an hour and you'd come back and you'd have scans. But then there was the business of like trying to use Epson scan or Silverfast or eventually ViewScan and then trying to tweak the at the time you know i wasn't really scanning my own color but trying to tweak the various balances to get the proper right. uh, and this is what i did for 15 years 15 years of scanning my own stuff on right. a flatbed and if you shot half frame having to realign to get the frames oh my god it was just so tedious only recently have I started to do, and I'm talking about in the last couple of weeks, wow. have I started to do what you've been doing for months, which is digital camera scanning, because I bought a nice digital camera, an Olympus mm -hmm. Pen F Digital, and the miracle of the mongoose has oh come upon gosh. me, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But the one trick, like once you have a scan, if you scan a black and white negative, you go into Photoshop or Lightroom and you just invert it. You just hit right. Command-I. 
It right. inverts it, and immediately you have a recognizable image. And you can tweak the curves, which I've kind of learned to do. So that's kind of easy. When you get into the business of scanning your own color film, it is quite complicated. Wow. ViewScan has profiles for different color films. And so if you tell it, I'm shooting Fuji 400 or Portra, it will convert it after the scan to a positive image in a way that is usually, not always, usually pretty good. But if you don't do that, if you're not using ViewScan, for example, if you're scanning color film with a digital camera, you're all of a sudden in the business of, how do I take this orange image yeah. And turn it into, it is not as simple as hitting Command-I in Photoshop. And this is the only unsatisfactory part of my <laughs> process right now. Because as I'm, I'm going to talk about the, view, the mongoose in a minute. But once I have my scanned images, if they are black and white, no problem. As I said, I came back from the trip. These wide lux images popped out of my digital camera. I hit right. invert and I loved them. But with color, you have some choices. Photoshop has a built-in inverter for color negative, not perfect. There are commercial softwares you can buy, Negative Lab Pro, Color Perfect. That's what I have, also, Negative Lab Pro, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they work, but there's finesse involved. And I'm yes. always aware when I'm using them, how true is this to what the film is giving me? Do right. you know what I mean? Right. Like if totally. I'm spending a lot of time enhancing the reds, am I really giving you like the Fuji color palette? Am I really right. giving you the Portra color palette? I feel like it's somehow dishonest. No, there is I, a good I, yeah. yeah yeah. There's a good free alternative, by the way, that I just started using called Grain to Pixel. Ah, free, which is a Photoshop script. So it plugs into Photoshop and it will invert, and it does a pretty good job. Pretty good. There's a lot of comparisons between it and Negative Lab Pro, but this is where things fall down right now. I don't believe there is a perfect push-button solution where I can tell you I'm scanning Portra 160 and it will flip that negative into a positive that looks like Portra 160 is supposed to look. So what do you do? Uh, Programmers get to work. (laughs) That's all I can say. I mean, I'm trying to learn, but it is challenging. When you're dealing with color, that's the only, that's that's the problem. Right. You know, and if we want to be able to process our own color film, you want to go the distance. So right. it's the one thing I'm not loving right now. And as I said, I don't have an entirely satisfactory thing. Right. But now let me talk about the joy. Yes. Can we you talk joy. about now you've backed the negative supply film carrier on Kickstarter. Am I right about that? I did the Voloi, V-O-L-O-I. Okay. And, and, ha- um, and do you have that object? No, they're not. Working they're not it's not done yet. So okay. they're they're still working on it, and uh, but that's you know that was uh, that was a while ago. But very okay. nice people. That's all. So I know. what do you use for your holder when you're scanning digitally? So I use one of I don't even know what the name of it is. It's a wonderful holder that yeah. you do six frames at a time. You line it up. There's a sort of a magnetic top. Oh, is that yeah, the Lomo Digitalizer? No. Oh, okay. Maybe it is. Um. Anyway. If I had it right in front of me, I'd grab it. But it's fantastic. It lines it up. It doesn't line it up all the time. So sometimes mm. I'm redoing it and redoing it. And then I put it under my... I have a old first Sony A7, which is what I use to digitize. And then I 
manually move it one frame at a time, wow. and that's where my back gives out. Gosh. Okay, yeah. so it's it's a it's a holder for one six frame negative, and you have to yeah. slide it. Oh, that sounds yeah. rough. Do you have a light table under? Of course. Yes, you do. I do. I do. Okay. All I just right. have a simple light board. Yeah. When I was beginning to experiment with digital camera scanning, I would simply take those plastic holders from the Epson, and I would <laughs> right. just stick them on the light table, and then I would do what you're doing, which is move frame to frame. Right. right. Then the mongoose came into my life. I love now, the name. I do not want to knock the people who are building manual rigs, oh, yeah, which have totally. a knob on them to advance, because that's awesome. Right. But what Ethan Moses of Cameradactyl has done is built a device that advances the film and can sense frame edges. You can either set a preset frame size, half frame, panoramic, standard 35 millimeter, square frame, whatever it is, you can set a frame size, or it will auto-sense, because it has sensors in there, it will auto-sense your frame, and if you have irregular spacing, it will correct for that, and it will line it up, and then it will trigger your camera. It's First of all, Jeff has posted this on our Instagram, I Dream of Cameras Instagram. It looks like magic. It literally looks like the future. It is spectacular. I mean, just seeing it and watching it, you just stare at it going, okay, it's like, there's the next frame, and there's the next frame, and there's the next frame, of which it's done, you know, something in the time that I would do three frames. I'm not kidding. It's, yeah, it's, it's a unbelievable. miracle. And I came back from this trip, and I processed three rolls of HP5, and they hung up for a while. And then I was thinking, you know, there's always that cringe that we have of like, oh, I got to scan these now. But I had tried the mongoose with a previous roll, and I thought, you know what? I'd never scanned panoramic, but the mongoose, let me give it a shot. And I fed in the roll, and I scanned all three rolls in three minutes. Okay, you know, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I'm so me, excited about this thing. Ah, Ethan said to me that he didn't advertise that it could scan that fast. Because he didn't want people to be disappointed if when they used auto-sensing mode, if it was a little bit slower. So oh what God. he advertises as is can scan a roll of film in under two minutes, which is already insane. Right. That's already insane. But when the first time I ran this thing through and I watched it magically just sucking images into the camera, and then I take the SD card, I stick it in my computer, I hit invert, and I have the whole roll. It's unbelievable. I think this is game changer. Not yeah. just for hobbyists like us, but I feel like this is the future for those one-hour labs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, why in the world? I mean, the closest this gets, the Paycon or Pacon scanner that Kodak yeah. used to make did something similar. Not as fast and not at the same resolution. And it required a computer also. It was driven by a Windows XP laptop. Yep. This is something that could conceivably just be transformative for a one-hour lab. You get this in there with a high-end digital camera. I don't have a high-end digital camera. I have a midline digital camera. But if you had a Nikon D something and it's hooked up to this, you can get 20 megapixel scans of each negative and they look amazing and you can turn them out like bang, bang, bang. I, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. spectacular. This thing is expensive. 
No joke. It's expensive. It's a homebrew electronic device that Ethan built himself in his secret underground lab. I love it. And I am hoping that enough momentum develops that he can bring this to market as a proper product. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be cheap. But if you, And, of course, you have to own a digital camera. Now, many of us do. I could even see this. I actually even tried to see if it could work with an iPhone. Because I'll bet you could rig up your iPhone, maybe with a macro lens attachment, and get yep. pretty damn good scans into your iPhone. I don't know if it can trigger iPhones yet, but many of us have digital cameras. I built a copy stand out of an inverted tripod, and I got a $20 light table on Amazon, and I'm in business. Right. So I just feel like for those of us who are looking for quick ways to get our photography up onto a screen. That's oh the way to God. do it. It is Absolutely. great. Now... I did shoot that video, which shows it scanning a 36 exposure roll in 30 seconds. And I put it up on Instagram. And I also put it on a couple of film photography groups on Facebook. And do you know what the reaction was? No. What are you doing? You're just taking a picture of a picture. I would not take my negative from a Leica. And I would not ha- dare to rephotograph <laughs> it. This is why I have a dark room. So I can get every single <laughs> grain why would I? Are you talking about the scanning snobs? Yeah. They're the scanning, scanning snobs. snobs. Yeah. The scanning snobs, as if it doesn't count. Right. Like, as if the only thing that counts is if you make a silver print with a proper enlarger. Oh, as if boy. that's the only thing that counts. Oh, oh boy. those people. Oh, yeah. Now, Enjoy it. Enjoy yeah. life. Listen, I love the dark room. I don't have any problem. I love it. It's great. Yep. Making prints is really fun. I hope to have a dark room like that someday. But in the meantime, if I want quick action and snazzy results that I can share with friends and family or share on Instagram, give me the mongoose, baby. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, God. Oh boy. I know it's it's but it's that same thing we talked about before on other episodes is, you know, sometimes you'll post something and you'll get immediate like, you know, what are you doing? Like why would you do that? Like, I don't do it like that. There's there's like, it's, you want the supportive group. That's, yeah. That's what I, there should be a yeah. film, film support group. That's it. You can only yes. say nice things. Yeah. Well, that's Rachel's whole thing. Shoot film, be nice. Yeah. Did exactly. you order a pin? I ordered a pin. Oh yeah. It's so cool. Ah, oh, yep. she's great. Yes. Yep. She's, she's put out a shoot film, be nice pin, which I'm going to add to the collection of pins, which I realized I should be sticking on my Swiss army bread bag. Oh. It'll look so That's good. That's what I should be doing. It's That's what it's going to go on. Those pins and also the vintage film pins and yes. that I see at every camera show or see when, you know, one of these beers and cameras groups gets together and you see people with these really cool pins. I'm always like, oh, man. So yeah. good. Yeah. All right. I want to close out. I just, I'm going to throw it to you to talk about film photography on YouTube. Yes. Yes. Okay. I do so much research on YouTube. And there are photographers that I've discovered to me that are just, they've been so helpful and they're really accessible and they're happy and they discuss their camera equipment and they compare and they test and and I just love it. It's a huge resource for me, especially when I'm going to buy something on eBay besides going to the completed sales and seeing how much they really have gone for is I will immediately go to uh, YouTube and see who's used these cameras, what stuff they're really? getting, and how 
complicated they are and what their experiences are. And it's been really, really helpful. And one of my favorite people on YouTube is Matt Day, who's a great photographer, great guy. Uh, We've communicated a bit and he's just, you know, got the right temperament and he's really patient and he, his opinions, I think are great, really informative. He gives details about, you know, when he shot the like M6 and whatever camera he's trying out, I really trust his opinion and it's it's been great. And his photography is great too. So it's really fun to see that. Okay. Who else do you like? Who else do you I like? I like Jared Polin, who has a very different demeanor, but he's fantastic. He's very sort of hyper like us. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I think he, he's terrific and he compares cameras and you know, shows him shooting with the cameras and uh, really, really informative as well. I really like Julia Trotty. Have you ever seen Julia Trotty? No, I, I have vanishingly little experience with oh, okay. YouTube. So, so Julia Trotty will take you on a shoot. Her boyfriend does the video of her shooting, You, it's which is really, really well done. And she will go through a whole shoot. She'll do behind the scenes. She'll do... Um, her Lightroom presets, which she creates. And she will tell you the lenses and what her exposure and her process. And it's an amazing process and how she does it. I believe she's out of Australia. But Julia Trotti is a great resource and another terrific photographer. Another one who's so much fun to watch is uh, Jessica Kobisi, who's out of New York, I believe, or Brooklyn, who is just like she'll take you on a fashion shoot and she'll give you honest opinions of the cameras and and working with models and working with people and she'll also collaborate with different people. I think it's really informative to see her tests of lenses and how she works and how she works in fashion and and you know the ups and downs and and reality checks you get of photography. I think uh she does a really really uh terrific job as well and then you know i just go down the list peter mckinnon i mean there's lots of pros that have been on there and and you just sort of i'll take a camera something i may be interested in and go look so like the om1 which i have never used in my life i've gone on there and and gone there's tons of videos on it and shooting fashion or portraits or the best portrait lenses or what you can do with them and the same thing with every film camera that i have and i think you know, I think one of the first people I saw was Matt Day talking about the M6. And it was really, really uh, interesting to see his take. And and then you see photos shot with it. So I, I really use YouTube a lot of the time. I need to do this more. I mean, it's great. It's, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just that because my orientation is more toward reading. Right. I When That's I silly. search for a particular camera, I just skip past the Google search results about videos and I go right to the articles. Right. Which is crazy. You're absolutely right. Like, it's a really good way to see, see and feel how a camera operates and how a person responds to it. I think the only time I really did a deep dive on YouTube about a particular camera was when I went through one of my X-Pan fascinations. Right. Because there are lots and lots of discussions of the X-Pan. Oh, and the Wide Lux as well. But I haven't used it as much as I should, and I am going to check out all the people you just talked about because it is a great resource. All right, well, gang, chime in with your favorite uh, YouTube channels. I'd love to learn more about this because this is just not an area that I have a lot of experience with, and clearly it is a massive resource for all the reasons you just described. So absolutely. Definitely. 
Um, what did you just remind me of that I wanted to ask you about? Ah, Clubhouse. Have you done it? Okay. So, <laughs> so many things I could talk about. So, yes. So, I have not done it yet, but right when it started, I was invited to come and, and do it, and I did a profile thing, but I haven't done it. I haven't, uh, I haven't done it. I did buy, you'll be very impressed with this. I did buy, the st- I bought six shares of Clubhouse stock. Wow. At 17, at, at $15 a share. And the day after I bought those six shares, it went to four. But anyway, um, <laughs> now I'm not saying that I'm an investment genius, oh. but um, it's going to go up again. But it has gone up. It's now at 13. But it's one of those things that I, it was just for fun. I thought it'd be a blast to just do that. But, but people are loving it. So so explain it. So you actually, you go in and it's an audio only? Right? Audio only. It's okay. basically, this is a really retro reference. Phone call? It's a, it's, it's a party line. <laughs> right. It's basically party line. It's all audio. I don't know how to find anything. The, the rooms that it recommends to me where people are talking are people that I know. Right. Um, I have dipped in and out. I'm scared of people, especially <laughs> strangers. So I have only dipped in a couple of times. Uh, my friend Alessandra got me on it, and I followed her into a room, and she immediately wanted me to talk, and so I ran away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, I know. But I did happen to check on it, like, the other night. This was, like, a week or two ago. It was, like, 1130 at night. I was getting ready to go to bed. I was doing my, like, info dump where I read Twitter or whatever. And I thought, what's going on on Clubhouse? I got on Clubhouse. There was a room going with Mike Gutterman, Andre Dominguez, oh Jamie Maldonado. That's the best Matt room Murray, ever. I was like, I got to just wander in and eavesdrop. So I wander in, and immediately Andre is on me. Like, okay, Jeff, so, so, say hi. So when, so when you go in, they see that you're listening, right? Yes. Oh, they see, see that, that you're listening. Oh, they that makes that me nervous. They see that you're listening, and they can invite you to speak. Or you can ah. raise your hand and ask to be recognized if you want to speak. But I didn't wow. want to do that because I'm a lurker. Right. But I got into a lovely conversation with Andre and Mike and Jamie and Matt about cameras and of course Matt's in Australia and like everyone's on the four corners of the world and it was kind of lovely so we talked for like 15 or 20 minutes they love the podcast that was a wonderful affirmation of the good work that we're doing here I saw how that could be fun wow but try it but the strangers as I said I I I, (laughs) but let's let's focus on the good part It it could be an interesting resource I wonder if it will continue to be as fascinating to people once the pandemic is over I think it might be. I think we may have to do an I Dream of Cameras room. I think we oh, might have to see what happens Let us there. know if y'all are interested in that. We'll I send you some clubhouse fun. invites. That'd be really I, well, yeah, fun. Yeah, that would be fun. We, I do, you know, this is part of a general thing I just wanted to talk about as we close out. More interaction, gang. One of the reasons we set up an email address is we just want to hear from you more. We are beginning to stockpile some of your messages, perhaps for a letters segment in our next episode. But we really want to hear from you because we don't want this to just be two guys monologuing or dialoguing. We want this to be like an open room, like, you know, the, the podcast analog of uh of a clubhouse so exactly and we are gearing up to have some guests in the near future so it's very exciting that we are uh putting that together because that'll be a whole new world for us and yes very exciting yes we're very excited i actually have some more people i want to talk to you about 
Oh, exciting. Yeah, yeah, very Fantastic. All right, so trust the process, gang. That is the overall message we have to share with you this evening. Thank you, as always, for the uh, love and support, as we said. Thank you to Fred Corey, our music director. Thank you, Fred Corey. Amazing music. I still love it. I'm never going to get tired of it. I actually (laughs) am kind of a snob because when I hear other people's theme songs, I think, we're better. (laughs) We're better. You know, and I like a lot of those theme songs. There's some good... uh, And also, the camera community has been really cool to us. I have to say, there's been other podcasts have been really, really nice to us. So thank you all. Yes. And thank you to Keith Greenstein, our, our tireless art director. Amazing. Oh my gosh. I got the uh, Two Guys Talk Cameras t-shirt and I wore it on the trip. And I got so a lot good. of compliments. It's very good. People don't see the gestalt thing at first. Right. But it's a good conversation starter. Yep, so I love it. Check it out on our website, idreamofcameras.com, where you can find everything about us and our merch and episode summaries and and more, as they say. And you can listen to them over and over again if you'd That's like. That's right. The way I do. <laughs> <laughs> of course. All right, that concludes episode eight. Episode eight, did you ever think we would get there? We're here, we're at episode eight. It's amazing. Episode eight, that's that's infinity sideways. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I think of that often. Yes. All right, thank you again, gang. Join us next time. We're keeping these going on a bi-weekly basis. I'm very excited. We'll see if we can keep it up. We love it. Thanks so much for your support, and we will see you next time. 